You're listening to the Cut Fangs Conversation, a hunting, fishing, and conservation-based podcast here in beautiful British Columbia. All right, here we are, episode 34 of the Cut Banks Conversation, and we're super excited to have our guest, uh, Alex Morton. Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, thank you. Well, thanks for uh, affording us an evening of your time. Uh, I know you're busy. There's <laughs> reading your book. There, there is there is volumes of evidence that your life is never dull and always occupied. Um, so we, have, we really appreciate you spending 90 minutes or so with us to talk a little bit, not just about your book, but about what's going on with the, the salmon farming industry. Um, where's home for you? Uh, home is on the north end of Vancouver Island. Um, I lived out in Echo Bay for 26 years, but then moved into where there's highways and things like that. <laughs> Although I'm still off grid, which is a little irritating because, you know, I'm in sort of in town. I should have power, but uh, I don't so anyway. But after a lifetime of living that way, you're probably comfortable that way, are you? I, I'm comfortable. It's a little dark, but <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I've got it down. Um, so I, I thought we'd start a little bit with your, just to kind of give our listeners um, a little bit of a feel for your your backstory academically uh, and professionally. Then those two things kind of commingle. So you're a New Englander by birth, correct? That's right. I was born in the Berkshire Mountains. It was a fabulous place to grow up, wandering the forest there. Uh, but I left as soon as I could drive because I really... I did want more wilderness. Um, I made a decision as a child to study. I wanted to study some large-brained animal and basically figure them out. Like uh, humans have a large brain. We are a mammal. We know all about ourselves. But what about some of these other large-brained animals that we share the planet with? What are, what are they thinking about? What are they talking about? Who are they? And... Um, so among the large brains, there's the primates, elephants, and then the cetaceans. And slightly randomly, I picked the cetaceans, the large, large brain dolphins. And so you were uh, partly, uh, um, you were partly inspired, I think, on some level by Jane Goodall, the work of Jane Goodall. Were you not? Oh, I absolutely was. Uh, growing up, uh, so I was born in 1957, and as a girl, there were no examples of women scientists other than Madame Curie, who quite frankly looked frightening in her lab coat, <laughs> blurry pictures of her. And I was really interested in animals and basically turtles and snakes and frogs and, uh, you know, the wildlife of New England. But I thought for sure I was going to have to give that up when I became an adult, because it, it seemed to me that no adults were studying animals. And when Jane Goodall appeared on the cover of National Geographic, which I was subscribed to, I just, <laughs> everything, all, all, all the background noise just, just vanished and I just focused on every single page. I could not believe that there was a young woman in the wilderness studying animals. It was like she opened the door to my life. Um, it was really a pivotal moment. So. Yes, that's what I wanted to do was go and put yourself in the environment of the animal. Don't pull them into a zoo, but go go to where they are and learn about them. And so that's what so that was part of the impetus. And so then you and you settled on uh, on dolphins and then so you went to school in American University, was that correct? I went to American University in Washington DC because um, my mother lived there. 
And, um, but then I went to Los Angeles and finished the last year basically by remote um, and began working with uh, a tank full of captive bottlenose dolphins. Um, I hadn't considered the orca, but um, I was very interested in those, those bottlenose, bottlenose dolphins. So, uh, yes, I got access to an oceanarium that was closed for a year, and so they allowed me to go in and, and set up my underwater microphones. And what I did was I one, one track of the tape recorder was the dolphins, and the other track was me trying to say everything they were doing, which... It was like calling a race with 13 right. horses was, <laughs> and some of them going the opposite direction. It was chaos. And, um, and then the orca, female orca gave birth to the first little whale conceived in captivity. And Oceanarium asked if I would go up and uh, put my gear in their tank and just get some recordings of this, um, this first time event. And I spent three days basically awake watching the the tragedy of this mother that couldn't figure out how to nurse her baby in this round tank. Right. Because what she needed was a, a long stretch to be able to glide and roll over and let the baby find the, the milk. But um, I was so moved by it and their, their sounds were entirely in my hearing range and their actions were so much slower than the bottlenose dolphins. Um, I never, never went back to the dolphin tank. I was completely curious and absorbed and intrigued by these um, two whales that were in this tank in Los Angeles. So you make a, so then you started to focus your effort on whale communication, correct? Yes, that's right. So same thing as I did with the dolphins. Uh, one track of the tape recorder was the whales. The other track was me. I coded all the behaviors and all the sounds and then entered these into a computer and looked for correlation. Um, it's a clumsy way to go at it, but it's really how else are you going to try to understand what a alien species yeah. <laughs> or non-human species is saying? And... <laughs> You know, if you did that with us, you would get the same sounds when we were greeting and the same sounds when we were tucking our children into bed. And there'd be a lot of other sounds, but some sounds would, uh, you know, hello, good morning, good night, I love you. These things would show up um, in circumstances where you could correlate them with behavior. So so I used to spend 12-hour shifts watching the whales, uh, one week, 12 hours during the day, and then the next week, 12 hours at night. And I did this on the weekend because um, I wasn't paid to do this. It was just my interest. And um, I learned so much. It was They, they were absolutely fascinating. Uh, the bond between them, there was behavior that, you know, as a young scientist, I was very nervous to – to call it ritualistic, but it's, it was. And, um, but they gave birth again and the baby died again. And I, boy, this just was, it destroyed them, but it destroyed me as well. And so I began to get curious about where these whales were from, because at the time that I was doing this, so this was like 1979, there were researchers in British Columbia who were just learning that every pod or family unit of the orcas spoke a different dialect. And so 
I wanted to take all that I knew about the dialect of these two whales in Los Angeles and and use that that knowledge uh, with wild whales. And it was remarkably easy to find the family of the female because uh, the scientist at DFO, Dr. Michael Big, had collected all the photographs of the whale captures. And when little Corky uh, was taken in 1969 from her mother, she was four or five years old. Of course, it was a terrifying situation in the capture. And she was glued to the side of one female, which was, we knew later got named A23 or Stripe. And she was of the A5 pod. And so Mike Biggs like, yeah, here's, here's a picture of her mom and here's her family and just go to Alert Bay in August and you will find them. And I did. It was easy um, because the whales were predictable in their movements. And, you know, the first time I dropped the underwater microphone and I heard the voices of these whales where they belong just echoing through the canyons of Johnson Straits. No sound of drains, you know, the water. <laughs> yeah. <drains. laughs> yeah. Yeah. The filtration system. Although yeah, the, 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 the romanticism finally was accompanying what it should have been. Yeah. Very good. Yes. And to see fat and healthy babies. Um, I have to say that to this day, I feel terribly guilty that I was with her family and not her, but that's, that's the way it went. And I, um, came up in 79 and then 1980, I just got all my stuff and, and came to live in British Columbia. And, uh, it was just absolutely my habitat. I loved everything about it. I love the wetness and the coolness and the whales. Um, I just, I loved it. I still love it. So then there's a, at some point, so you, you, you you decide at that moment you're this will be your life's work or or at least it feels like it could be so you you've become known as <laughs> the, the the voice against salmon farming and as the person who's one of the champions of trying to save wild salmon um but even in the title of your book you you refer to your i'm, I'm did you did you put the title together was that your is that your own self description because no. when i when no. i think when, i've read the book and you don't you don't strike me as a renegade whale biologist, but um, you start as a whale biologist. So can you connect the dots? How do we go from studying orcapods to all of a sudden there's there's a salmon farm in your midst and there's an issue and, and, all of, and the rest of what has become your life's work happens. Can you make that transition for us? Yes. So um, – as a, a girl and a young woman, I read every single book about people that went into the wilderness to study a wild animal. And I noticed that every single book was divided in three parts. And the first part was just this incredible discovery and adventure and learning to live in the wilderness. And part two was always, uh-oh, <laughs> something <laughs> terrible is happening. And everything that this person had learned about these creatures, um, let them understand that they were about to be badly hurt, if not driven to extinction. And then part three of every book was just so boring. It was, you know, grad students and talking to government and how, how do you, how does somebody who went into the wilderness try to talk to government and make changes? 
And so I was all equipped. I was not going to do part two and part three. I was going to stay in part one. And when I arrived on the coast, there was a big issue about logging, and I didn't do anything about it. I, I didn't want to listen. I didn't want to engage. I didn't do anything about poor Corky in captivity, even though I knew it was wrong. I didn't want to get derailed. I just wanted to figure out what these whales were thinking and saying. But in the process of doing that, fishermen, particularly one fisherman, Billy Proctor, who's born and raised out there in Echo Bay, where there's you know no roads, no phones, um, no ferries, uh, he was a salmon predator that I could talk to. And the, the orcas were salmon predators that I couldn't talk to. And I would take, I would go to him and I'd say, Hey, Billy, do you know why, can you figure out why the killer whales uh, in the spring will go up Kinkum Inlet with just the top six inches of their dorsal fin staying out of the water? They look like little sharks all the rest of the year, everywhere else. They dive down and they disappear. But in this one place and time, they're just cruising along with their fin showing. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, I can tell you. It's because the glacier meltwater is about six feet deep. And those big spring salmon, well, they're right down there underneath that meltwater. And that orca's got his eyes right there. And um, wow, okay, it was so obvious when he told me. I was like, <laughs> oh, that makes sense. So um, he came to me one day and... Uh, and he said, he said, look, they're putting these salmon farms in all the wrong places. Would you please write a letter to DFO? Well, I was so pleased that this man who I had enormous respect for had come to me with a request for a change. Um, because Billy not only was a source of information, he also took the whole town to town to like to go shopping on his fish boat and we'd all pile on in the dark and he'd take <laughs> us to Port McNeil and, you know, we'd buy our groceries. It gets very rough in the winter. Uh, and so many of us didn't want to go to town in our little speed boats uh, during the winter. Uh, he would, you know, help us with all the problems with our float houses or how to run a chainsaw. I mean, he just taught me so much. So when he came to me and said the fish farms were being put in the wrong places, that they were, being put on top of the prawn, rock cod, and salmon hotspots, um, he asked me to write a letter to DFO and explain that. I thought fish farms were great. Uh, you know, we had a little one-room school out there, and I had a little boy, and I wanted that school to stay open. Um, so we thought the farms would bring more families. But anyway, I wrote the letter to DFO, and um, DFO wrote back... Dear Ms. Morton, there is no evidence of yeah. what you are saying. Right. Well, okay, if they had said there's no proof, I would have had to say, you're right, I don't have proof. But evidence, oh, yeah, no, there was evidence. That's what I was providing. I was providing evidence of toxic algae blooms, of Atlantic salmon in the rivers. There was gunfire all over the place as these kids on the farms were shooting at seals and, you know, guns over water is very dangerous because bullets skip, skip. and yeah. Um, there was debris all over the place. There was lines. Billy said he just about lost his head because there was a line stretched, a black line from shore to the farm. And he's going along in his little open speedboat and he saw it at the last second and he ducked under it. So 
you know, it was just, it was a bit chaotic with those guys when they first showed up. And anyway, so, so DFO said there was no evidence. And so I was like, okay, all right, uh, let me write another letter here. And, and I talked to Billy some more and I talked to the prawn fishermen and, and the rock cod fishermen and on we went. And I ended up writing 10,000 pages of letters. Uh, and I know this because I made a little black mark in my float house above the printer. So I'd have to go like fire up the generator, <laughs> print out this letter. This is before email, right? So I want to copy 10 people. The letter's 10 pages. And um, I was so convinced for a decade that if I just lined up my words in the right order, that someone from DFO would come out and take a look. But they never did. Uh, they never did. In fact, at the same time, uh, they were preventing us from tying our float houses up to the shoreline. So when you go to tie up your float house to the shoreline in British Columbia, you need a tenure. And the tenures are, are granted by the province. And so I, I wanted to be legal by the book. By this time, I was a widow with a little boy and living in this remote, remote place. And I really... You know, I wanted to be a good law-abiding citizen and have a tenure and, and pay for the right to be there and have something secure. So I went to Victoria, and I talked to the man at Crown Lands, and he said, oh, no, we've decided um, there's not going to be any more tenures for residents. I said, what? No, excuse me? We were, we're a town. We have a school. We have a post office. We have we have Christmas concerts. You know, I was yeah. trying to. I was trying. It was a ridiculous conversation. Like we are a town. We're small, but we're a town. Anyway, he's like, "Yeah, no, I know, but that's that's what's happening. The province has decided that they're only going to grant tenures to uh, salmon farms, moorage for tourists, and log boom storage. Just Echo Bay had been there for a hundred years, so." Um, at some and, and it didn't it didn't really I didn't understand what was going on because it was so innocent. I really believed the government was working for us, the people, and I just I don't know. I couldn't couldn't reconcile this, but looking back, they were trying to get rid of us from the beginning. And they did eventually. They burnt the school down as soon as the kids were all through it. They they harassed us, they flew over us, they they sent pictures of our neighbor's float houses and said, what is on that float? And I'm like, are you kidding? Go, go ask, go ask them yourself. Nobody felt secure. And so people stopped moving into the community and eventually, you know, it just withered away, which is just, really tragic. Uh, just one of the things that I'm curious about in, in that chain of events, I mean, a couple of things that I, I recall reading is that Billy had, had, had noted a couple of things. He had some history with the enhancement hatchery, correct? Like, a, I think it was. Yes, like, yeah. And so he, he had an experience with, like, okay, well, you know, in an enhancement hatchery, you know, there's going to be effluent and there, there's things that happen when you put a bunch of fish in one place. And he already recognized, listen, these salmon farms, no matter how well intended, I kind of got the sense that he was like, like, there's going to be some, they're going to cause issues, not just they're going to cause issues because there's going to be disease the way that they're handling this. Like he could, he already knew it's like he saw the movie in the rerun before it even happened. And he probably imparted that to you a little bit, but I mean, here's this, this guy's like, listen, like there's all kinds of issues with this salmon farm and it's not just, 
it, it, it's not just because it's inconvenient. It's not just rock cod. It's there's all kinds of layers to this. I was really compelled in a very in that in your brief description. I was like, this guy has got the wisdom of Solomon and then some. And but True. so then you start sending letters and a barrage of inquiry, um, asking for help, and and now you're starting to shine some light into what I would think is a dark corner that nobody's thinking about other than we're plopping all these salmon farms and issuing tenures. So is it the noise that you start to make and the flashlight that you've turned on that makes them go, we got to get like, let's just suspend the tenure. We just got to move these people out of there. So they stop asking questions. Is it, am I reducing it to make it? I mean, it sounds like, I think there's lots of villainy in this play, but do you think that that's had something to do with them trying to move everybody out of Echo Bay? It's interesting you mentioned that. I hadn't really thought about it before, but um, it, it wasn't me. It, it, this started in Seashell Inlet, and the, the community of Seashell Inlet hated it. There were people there who were sending me reams of paper. Um, I can't even remember their names, but they drove them out along with the algae blooms because Seashell Inlet just didn't have enough flush for uh, the massive amount of waste coming out of these farms. But I think that they saw what happened in Seashell Inlet they picked the little sleepy town of Echo Bay. They ignored the First Nations completely because they all said no from the very beginning. I didn't know that they said no, um, but they did. And so, yeah, I think that I think it was their experience in Seashell Inlet. But it's interesting, you know, you're talking about Billy and the Enhancement Hatchery because he uh, he was just pouring his life into this little coho hatchery and they had operated for 10 years with approximately 3% brood stock mortality. So, so only 3% of the brood stock fish died when they brought them into the hatchery. And um, w- right after the salmon farms arrived, suddenly uh, the fish erupted in these great big boils. We didn't know what it was. I was a volunteer there. And um, it turns out it was furunculosis. And we lost 28% of the broodstock. Eventually, uh, DFO came and gave us oxytetracycline to inject into every fish, which worked like a miracle. But this was at the beginning when the salmon farmers actually did live in our town, and we did become friends, and we got together for dinners, and they talked about it. They're like, yeah, we got this frunculosis thing going on. And we're like, oh, really? Yeah, we have that this frunculosis thing going on too. And then two years later, we got it again in the hatchery, but this time the drug didn't work. And I was at the gas uh, dock uh, putting fuel in my boat when I overheard some fish farmers say they had a triple dose of frunculosis. I thought, okay, what does that mean, a triple dose of frunculosis? Well, it turns out, what, what he really was saying was they had frunculosis that was triple antibiotic resistant, was resistant to wow. all three of the antibiotics that the salmon farming industry was allowed to use. And we couldn't kill it uh, in the hatchery. And I, at this point, I'm getting really concerned. And I said to DFO, what about the rivers? We, we can see it's in the hatchery, but what's happening in the Kakwekan and the Viner and the Ada? And uh, boy, that's when they really started to shut down and they, they just didn't want to talk about it. Um, I later learned that it was a disease called salmon leukemia virus that was spreading through the Broughton. And 
uh, DFO uh, Pacific Biological Station wrote a series of scientific papers on it in the 1990s, uh, publishing them, some of them in the Journal of Cancer. Um, and this was in the Chinook farms. And this is why they couldn't keep those Chinook alive. And so they switched very rapidly to Atlantics, which were somewhat more immune to this. But that is a whole other story. And that's a story that never came to light, even though DFO published on it. They never sequenced the virus. So we, we, aren't, we aren't able to see what happened with it. So they published it. So have they ever disclosed any of the research or they just they never sequenced it? It was like, oh, this is what was it a very generic finding or was it more in depth and they just obfuscated the the access to that information? So the farmers came to DFO and said, hey, all our fish are dying. And they looked like they have anemia because their gills are very pale. And the fish farmers called it marine anemia. And so this triggered DFO to try to help them out and figure out what it was. And so they they wrote all these papers. We think it's a virus for these reasons. It appears to be a virus. It's acting like a virus. Oh, look, it's spreading everywhere they go. So it started in the Discovery Islands, and then they came to the Broughton. And, and it ripped around in there. And then they found out that it spread to wild fish. They found out that it spread to sockeye. Um, and then, oh, they just stopped talking about it. And during the Cohen Commission in 2020, years later, um, we put this Dr. Michael Kent, who was one of the senior authors, and he was the director of the Pacific Biological Station. We put him on the stand and we asked him about it. And he goes, oh, you know, we don't really think that was a virus now. We just think it was a syndrome. He just he was like, he threw all of his own work under the bus. And I'm like, well, you should go back to the Journal of Cancer and get this thing <laughs> removed. But but it's still sitting there published. So very. Wow. And this ties into what happened to the sockeye and all the pre-spawn mortality. But that that's a whole chapter of my book um, on salmon leukemia virus. So we're going to, and I'd like to, what I'd like to do, um, I want to come back to that. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the work at some point with Dr. Christy Miller and, and, and sort of her, she sort of intersects with some of that. But what, what I'd like to do, let's just do a little deep dive and we'll call this Salmon Farm 101. Um, so let's, th- this industry really starts, I mean, it, it's not, it's not unique to Canada. This industry has existed um I, I would say the the larger parent companies probably Norway, Scotland, there are other parts of Europe. How does this? When does this industry show up in British Columbia? Um, and let's talk a little bit about its history, how it's cobbled together, why they choose this particular mechanism for for setup, and why they're why they're built out on the ocean uh, versus on land. Let's just talk a little bit about the salmon farming industry as a whole and how they got there, um, and then we can kind of get into the meat and potatoes of some of the issues you found. Well, it's interesting. So the, the Fisherman's Union magazine called The Fisherman, they were on this thing very, very early. And um, Jeff Meggs, who now is like number two in the provincial government, um, working very closely with John Horgan, Jeff Meggs was the editor of The Fisherman. And he attended a meeting uh, in 1984 in Vancouver uh, with the BC Science Council. I think that was the name of it. It doesn't exist anymore. But this was an organization, a government organization that was supposed to keep Canada on the forefront of technology. And he came out of that meeting and he said, this is the end of the common property fishermen, fishery. This, the salmon farming industry is going to be foreign owned. It's going to be problematic. 
It's going to displace the commercial fishermen of this coast. It was unbelievable the foresight that he had. And for a long time, he tracked it and, and tried to fight it off. So in the beginning, the leases were applied for by British Columbians, and the farms were tiny. They were little cobbled together affairs of wood walkways and net pens and a couple of float houses. Um, a friend of mine grew up on one of these little um, situations, but they couldn't keep their fish alive because, you know, once you start breaking the natural laws and you make salmon go around in a circle instead of migrate, you get a disease in there. There's no predators to clean it up. And, and so they very rapidly went out of business through the eighties and then uh, Ibec, which is a big uh, Rockefeller U.S.-owned company. I think they are actually either chicken farmers or pig farmers in the in the states. Ibec moved in and they started farming Chinook. They were doing all kinds of funny things. Um, there were entire farms full of albino spring salmon. I saw them. Um, I don't know how they did that. I don't know where those fish came from or what the story was. But they started all dying. And then the Norwegians moved in. Um, Stoltze Farms, they're a big chemical tanking corporation out of Norway. Um, Scanmar, which I always right. thought was really <laughs> fitting. Um, Marine Harvest, Cermak, Nutreco, um, a, a Dutch uh, organization. And now we're just down to three Norwegians, Maui, Cermak, and Grieg. Um, Greg is owned, or sorry, Cermak is owned by Mitsubishi, but it's run by this Norwegian company. And so they moved in and they brought in Atlantics. It's just like um, cattle farmer wanting to bring in their prize Black Angus or dairy cows. They had bred Atlantics to handle captivity, and so they wanted to bring those fish in. And at some point, I connected with uh, some people in the Ministry of Environment, the Provincial Ministry of Environment. I called them the Rivermen because these guys were very, very concerned about what was going on. The fact that they were bringing in these exotic fish by the, you know, by the millions, and they tried to fight it off. And this was in the '90s, so this was um, Harvey Andrasak and Earl Warnock and others. When they first called me and we talked, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe somebody in government believed me. And they said that their argument not to allow exotic fish in because they might carry an exotic pathogen was ignored because they said men in suits showed up and it was decided. Uh, so they assumed it was lawyers. And in looking back over the record the, uh, through the Access to Information Act, what happened is these companies said, for us to be competitive on the world market, we need to be able to bring in our Atlantic salmon. And so Canada was afraid of, of trade sanctions if they didn't allow them to bring in these Atlantic salmon. But our director general of DFO, Pat Shamut, he actually said, we are playing Russian roulette. We might get a pathogen we've never even heard of. Well, that's exactly what happened. We got Piscine orthoreovirus, this blood virus that is ripping through the salmon farming industry and, and the whole coast right now. 
So when they, when the salmon farm, so the, the, is the model always been based on, whether it's in Norway or Scotland or wherever it manifests and, and takes root, is it always, there's, there's a couple of things. So the other, organ, the other, uh, I guess, players, you said, they, they tried to scale small. So we scale up these large, um, you know, ocean net pens. Um, why are they not, A, why are they not land? Like, why are they not on land? Is it strictly because they don't have to pay for the dirt? Is that really what it comes down to? Uh, no, it's not paying for the dirt. It's that they don't have to shovel their manure. They are producing literally tons of manure a day because, you know, ton, tons and tons of feed are going into these farms daily. And uh, so they don't have to shovel manure. They don't have to get provide oxygen, although eventually they did because they had too many fish. But So it's an input cost thing. It's strictly inputs. They were externalizing their costs. They didn't have to shovel their manure. The ocean just kept things clean. The cost of a few walkways and nets and anchors is, is so much smaller than having to build a land-based facility. Um, it's cheap and dirty. And now it's, you know, 30-year-old technology. And, and these guys are just addicted to this technology because it's, even though they lose a lot of fish, it's so lucrative and and temporary if they decide they don't want to be on the bc coast anymore they're out of here there's there's that stuff will work anywhere yeah so when when they they show up in british columbia there and the, the one of the things that i recall reading is it it's there's an interesting quote you had a um you had a i think it was somebody from norway um who had who had said you had sent some questions i think basically looking for uh yeah i forwarded the pictures uh, uh, some some photos and i think they were probably of some dead fish and was this from lice and you uh, forwarded the pictures um to scientists who were authoring papers on sea lice in norway and scotland an expert from norway was the first to respond yes those are juvenile sea lice and you and what do you want to know how do i study them do you have salmon farms and you said yes, and you wrote, my suggestion to you is you drop this. Your government won't be happy with you, and the industry won't be happy with you. You're going to have good years for lice and bad years, and in the end, you're not going to have wild salmon. Like, when I read that, I was like, it's like you just said, hey, what are these? Um, I'm not sure where they're coming from. We're going to get in that a little bit. But just the fact that somebody's like, do you have see when, when they said, like, do you have fit? It's like salmon farms? And it's like, yeah. And it's like, yeah, you got to get out of this. Just give it up. I was just like, well, that's pretty. So there's a body of work that says where they have already existed, there has been conflict and controversy. Does the Canadian government not at some point when you're trying to welcome this industry onto your shores say, let's take a look at, I mean, somebody just comes up and says, hey, listen, we got nets, we got fish, you got water, sounds like a match made in heaven. Is that the level of oversight? Or was, like, I mean, I'm just shocked that we just said, yeah, sure, go ahead, sink an anchor. Let's knock it out and start raising salmon. Sounds good to us. I know. I, I This is a question I, I still grapple with because the, <laughs> either they were idiots or they were evil. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, it's because I figured it out uh, by looking at the literature. Uh, I saw what was going on in Norway and Scotland, and the sea lice issue was just huge. And uh, well, I mean, I, I I look at the to to introduce something from, and in, in this case, Atlantic salmon. But if we wanted to 
they were culling tar in New Zealand. If I wanted to bring 20 tar here from New Zealand, do you know what kind of biological oversight would have happened? It doesn't matter how good it could could be or might not be, but to bring 20... We're, we're not allowed to farm ungulates in BC. Yeah. I mean, we have all of these restrictions, but I, I'm just shocked that there is almost... If there was discretion, I just don't see where it has been applied. I really don't. Don, I, I, I think, I think wild salmon are the problem, and, and I'm saying this now. I, I resisted this uh, thought for um, a long time, but it was in, fa- in fact it was Jeff Meggs that brought it up first. We eventually um, met and went to lunch, and he said, "Look, I think it's because they want to dam the Fraser River," and I was like, "What?" He's like, yeah, I, I think I think that's because they want to dam the Fraser River. They want to get rid of wild salmon. I think I think the only thinking that went on was, oh, hey, here's a salmon that doesn't need a river. Mm-hmm. Right. People be fine. They're yep. salmon. They don't need a river. People won't notice. I don't know. Uh, it was it was so cruel that thinking because the commercial fishing industry was huge. It was building communities. It was it was you know, maintaining communities. And then there's the first nation uh, relationship and, and, and requirement for wild salmon. And then there's the whole ecosystem with the bears and the whales and everything else. But I honestly think wild salmon are just too much trouble because they require international agreements. They require rivers. They require clean coasts. They're just a pain. I, I, that's the only thing I can think. And, you know, I, I said that Steve and I on one of our, our first episode ever, we, we actually talked about salmon. And prior to that, we were in the midst of when we first started our podcast, we were still on the heels of the big bar landslide. So, you know, as we were looking for broodstock and, you know, we were seeing returns in streams that had, you know, historical averages of 5,000 and we found five fish. Yeah, counting them on one hand. And, you know, when we brought that up to in a video that I, I did and Steve and I promoted around where I basically said, I guess, I mean, if that's not an issue that we don't have a, an immediate solution with some urgency, unless your goal is to manage to zero, because if there, if there are no wild salmon, then it's super easy. Then when there's nothing we need to plan We've seen for. it with wildlife here. And yeah, and we see it absolutely with wildlife. And when I look at one of the things that's really, um, it's insidious a little bit. When you talked about the red zone clearances as the salmon farming industry comes in, and it's like, okay, well, show us all of the good spots and the bad spots. And, and they get Billy and all of the fishermen and the community. They assemble everybody. They get, they solicit community feedback about, okay, well, don't put them here and don't put them here. And it essentially all they did is they grandfathered tenures into every place where you said this would be bad. Don't put them there. They're like, perfect. That's where it's going. They, it wasn't how they started the conversation, but that's absolutely how they finished it. I, I, that was shocking to me. Yeah. You know, and, and, and a lot of the fishermen said that to me. They're like, Alex, they're, don't, don't do this. Don't do this. And I was like, no, 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 no. They, I mean, that was, a, that was a real. And was it really a masquerade? Like, did they really masquerade it out as, you know, we just we genuinely want to make sure that we put these in areas that don't have impact on fishing opportunity and on, you know, the, the natural um, movement of fish, et cetera. Was it, did they masquerade it that way? I, I think the guys on the ground that were out there talking to us thought they were doing the right thing. 
Not all of them, because a few of them went and started working for the company shortly thereafter, like Claire Backman. He was he was the <laughs> one working for the province, figuring out where these things could go, and then and then soon he's working for the companies. Um, I, I I don't honestly know, but you know they came to us. They said, "Where don't you want these?" We told them, and then they put them there <laughs> Just, I, and they actually promised first they promised they wouldn't put them there. That was the really, these guys were not organized. They made a map and they promised they would not put them in these red areas. And then, and then they put more farms in the red areas than the green areas. And so I went after them. I was like, okay, you promised. And they're like, Oh, well, no, we, we talked to everybody and they changed their minds. So I was like, no, yeah. you didn't because I'm one of them. Look, I'm on your list. <laughs> on your document and I asked the other people on the list nobody got asked well then they said oh those red zones were so big we decided that you know they said they were painted with a broad brush we could put a little itty bitty salmon farm in them I was like no 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 sergeant's pass your red zone is so small that your farm fills it and spills out beyond it and then they said oh any any application that had been made prior to this Needed was to be grandfathered, grandfathered in, was... even if there was no farm there. And so, of course, the farmers were applying for two or three sites a week. We know because they had to list them in our in the North Island Gazette, our newspaper. And I mean, they were it was just splatter shot. They were just they were applying for every piece of shoreline they could possibly tie to. And so. It was dishonest. Not, not only dishonest, and there's one of the one of, my, one of the one of the things uh, in, uh, in 1998, a scientist at the University of Oslo called salmon farms pathogen culture facilities. I mean, and I mean that that when I read that, I mean it's like that's a pretty bad indictment um, of an industry. So let's talk a little bit about. So we know that they get there, they have tenure. Obviously, maybe it's questionable what their intention was. Um, we'll move into some of the the, uh, the other issues like escapement and stuff of Atlantic salmon in a little bit, but let's just talk about from a from a risk to wild salmon. Uh, let's talk about how how that risk presents itself. There is a number of diseases, uh, viruses, and stuff that seem to be born out of, or at least um, seem to, to to bear out or or accelerate rapidly in the conditions that. Are, uh, that, that, that salmon farms create. So it's like they've become perfect breeding thing. It's like a, a, a petri dish, an ocean-bound petri dish for bacteria and, and disease. So let's talk a little bit about some of the, the diseases that salmon farms have perpetuated. Yes, so the, the reason that they're dangerous is because they're feedlots. They are growing as many fish as possible in as small a space as possible, as fast as possible, on an unnatural diet. And so they're breaking the natural laws because in nature, any salmon that is swimming at the end of the school, so it's even slightly slow, is taken out by a predator. The predators are on them from the very beginning, you know, starting with the trout and the, and the mergansers and then right on up to the orca. And so there, there, there is no disease outbreaks generally in the wild. It's extremely rare. But in the farm, once a sea louse gets in, or a bacteria, or a, or a virus, it just, it breeds in them. And we know so much about this after COVID, or we're still in COVID, is that when you, when you crowd people together and you put the virus in there, you're going to get a much higher infection rate. And anybody exposed to them is going to pick this up. So the, 
the, the pathogen we all knew about in the very beginning, because it's so easy to see, is sea lice. Sea lice are natural, absolutely. They don't exist in freshwater, so the farm salmon go in clean, and the wild salmon go in clean. When they come out of the rivers and they go into the ocean, they don't have sea lice either. The wild fish go out and they meet older wild salmon, and they get sea lice out there. But they only get a few. And then they come back in, and the, the wild fish go into the rivers, and all the sea lice die, so that when the babies come out in the spring, there's no sea lice. But when you put a million salmon farm, or a million Atlantic salmon in farms dotted along the coast, the wild salmon go by, they infect the farm salmon, and then the wild salmon go and do their thing. And the sea lice are like, oh, wow, this is just perfect. Everybody's going around in a circle. Sea lice actually have a really difficult childhood because for the first few days after they hatch, they can't attach to a salmon. This is to make sure that a baby louse does not get on mom's salmon because mom does not want a whole bunch of little lice on her fish. She just wants a couple of lice. And so they have to swim free in the ocean. And, you know, most of them never find a fish. But in the farms, it's way easier for them to find fish. So they do find fish and um, they breed all winter. And then by spring, when the wetter temperature bumps up a little bit and there's more light, they start breeding even faster. And there are literally billions of larval lice all looking for a little wild salmon. And here come these particularly the pink and the chum salmon, which have no scales when they hit the ocean. And these lice attach to them, and their bodies will just like shrink up around the lice. The, the response in the little fish is just dramatic. And um, in, in the Broughton Archipelago, we had like the Otter River, which is this beautiful pink salmon river, unlogged, abundant fish. But the baby, um, the little fry, go by the farms, they get infected, and then they keep going for a little while. But there was this bay that I named the Bay of the Damned. Because by the time these little guys got there, they just gave up. They could not eat enough to feed themselves and the lice. And they're just lying around on the surface, darkened. And the kingfishers are just picking them off. And so, it, it, you know, for, for somebody who's looking at this really, really closely, I'm using a beach chain. It's 150 feet long. I jump out of my speedboat, I tie it onto a rock, I back the speedboat around in a semicircle, I jump out at the other side, tie the boat to the net, and pull the net in. So I've got now this little, got all the fish in a little place, and I just dip them up with a five-gallon bucket, and I let the rest of them go. And then I look at every single fish in the bucket, and the way you do it is you take a little aquarium net, pop them into a Ziploc bag, look at them really quickly with a hand lens, put them down on graph paper, measure them, let them go. And so what, what, what you notice then very dramatically is that the fish near the rivers look fine. They look beautiful. Um, they're all these sparkling silver and blue. When you, when you look at them under the hand lens, you know, they're just gorgeous. And well, then they get to the first farm and, oh, they get a few of the very, very young lice. And then they keep moving, and the lice just get older. So lice change their body shape every few days for the first 30 days, so you, you can really see where they get on. And then they get to the next farm, and now they have the older lice, and they have some more young lice. And then they get to the next farm, and the next farm, and the next farm. 
this was easy science. And, and people in Norway had done it. The guy I wrote to in Scotland to help me figure out how to do this, he said, can't you guys in Canada even read? We knew this was going to happen to you. So it had been, I mean, it's not like this isn't published material. It's not yeah. like, it's not like the scientific community wasn't aware that they exist and that there, that these kinds of conditions will amplify, right? And become force multipliers. There's a whole, like I said, we're back to the whole body of work. There's a history of this and somebody's already talked about it. And so you present this and not just a little bit and not just once, how often are you presenting this and trying to get this in front of DFO at this point? Oh, my gosh. So, well, DFO, but also I, I published over 20 scientific papers on this. Then I opened up my home to other scientists. It's hard to come out to Echo Bay and, and do research, right, because there's, there's no place to stay. So I was feeding grad students, um, and they just kept coming and coming eventually. <laughs> he turned my home into a research station because I only had so much brown rice and kale and coconut milk to feed them with but they were brilliant and they were they began publishing it it, it was just we produced a, a a huge body of science that that simply uh verified what had happened in norway and scotland and to this day the salmon farming industry and senior management and dfo will not admit that the sea lice are coming from the salmon farms. It's just unbelievable. Um, and that's predicated on what? Like that, 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 that defense of their, of their, of their business. And I guess the, their, their fish health is, is predicated on what? Because sea lice ex exist and no more in our pens than anywhere else in the ocean. That's it. That's the argument. Uh, they have a, they have a variety of arguments. One of them is that this little fish called the stickleback is really the problem. Oh my God, we we disproved that in two thousand and seven because nobody to this day has seen an adult lice on a stickleback. Sea lice use suction to stay on, and stickleback are just too darn bumpy. You know, the the the, the, the sea lice can't stick to them. They do get lots of juvenile lice sometimes, and so DFO's like, oh, look, it's the stickleback. The stickleback is tiny. It's like, you know, four centimeters long, and here's all these great big lunking <laughs> Atlantic salmon all nice and slimy, covered with sea lice. Oh, no, 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 it's not them. It's these little stickleback. I mean, <laughs> if it wasn't, if we weren't talking about extinction of a fish as remarkable as wild salmon, it, it would be a comedy. Um and they'll just say, you know, you haven't proved it. There's sea lice everywhere. No, there's not. Not on juvenile fish. No, no, no. We did that work. <laughs> so now that they're taking the farms out, we're getting to actually study what happens when you take the darn things out. And for sure, the lice are disappearing again because the lice don't just appear. They have to hatch off of a salmon. And you know, they have they need a salmon to to complete their life. But this is what was so, um, I mean, really, really difficult. So here I am living in this beautiful, pristine wilderness. I now love it. It's my home. I've raised two children there. Um, and I'm watching salmon go extinct for such a stupid reason that these farms just have to sit right on their migration routes. If you just took the farms out of the water and put them on land, 
you could have an aquaculture industry and you could have abundant wild salmon and you could have wilderness tourism and you could have thriving little communities and the bears wouldn't be starving. And so every spring I'm watching this and I just keep thinking, oh my God, how is it I cannot communicate this to government? How is it they're allowing this to happen? So when you're, so you're, you're publishing papers, you're presenting, yes. you're, you're trying to find, I'm assuming not just uh, scientific communities, but public, uh, public ways to, to get the message out that this stuff is going on, right? So we've got furunculosis, now you've got lice, but it, it doesn't stop there. Like the layers just keep stacking up. So sea lice isn't seeming to, it's not resonating with anybody. Nobody's, there's no alarm bells sounding other than your own, right? So how do we get to the, the, the I guess the next layer is what, is PRV? Is that the next layer of, of disease or, or the next disease vector that becomes an issue? Yes. So I became a, um, a participant in the Cohen Commission. So the Cohen Commission was struck in 2010 by the Harper government because there was this decline in the Fraser River sockeye that nobody could um, explain. After the sockeye of the Fraser River began to decline in approximately 1992, which, by the way, was exactly the year the fish farms went on to the migration route of those fish. But anyway, it started to decline, and then in 2009, the bottom just dropped out from under them. And, and so this commission was called. And by then I had ga- engaged in some activism. And when they called this commission, um, uh, I, I formed the aquaculture division. Nobody wanted to be part of my team. So it was just me and my lawyer, which worked out really well, actually. And we, in the very beginning, requ- we, we requested the disease records of the salmon farms. We said, to be able to figure out whether the sockeye were being hurt by the salmon farms, we needed the disease records. Well, right away, the province pushed back. Like, no, 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 we're not going to let those. So a hundred of us got into canoes in hope, and we paddled for a week down the Fraser River, and then we walked and took over the entire lane of the Burrard Street Bridge and walked all the way into the commission. It was pouring and we had one request, and that was the disease records of the salmon farms, and we got them. Well, so, th- so then I began to look at them, and I was, like, really alarmed. What is, what is Piscine Rio virus? You know, what is ISA virus? Um, what is Tenacibaculum? Um, all of these things that were being reported um, both the pathogen themselves in some cases, but in other cases, just the symptoms of the diseases that these pathogens cause. ISA virus is in the influenza family. It's the most dangerous salmon virus in the world. And the pathologist that was looking at the farm salmon kept saying, oh, I'm seeing the classic lesions associated with this salmon influenza virus. So I was like, okay, I guess, you know, I don't believe anything government says at this point. I I guess I better start trying to study viruses. And um, so I connected with a virologist with a lab, and I just became the field end of that and and would go out and 
take samples, take samples from commercial fisheries, from juvenile fish in the beachings, uh, fish up and down the rivers um, that were, you know, after they had spawned. And we found everything that they said was there. And then they, they became very angry about that <laughs> because they didn't want them to be there, but they were. I just found what they said was already there. They told the hatcheries not to give me samples. The salmon farming industry began slandering me, which I really should have fought back on because it's more dangerous than I realized. And you also, there even early on, did you not have even some reluctance from some of the fishing community to, to, to get, to help you get samples um, when you were looking for Atlantic salmon escapements and, and things like that? Uh, I, yes. I, I think I have a more and more troubled relationship with, with the fishing industry. Um, and I'm not sure exactly why, but you no, know, in the beginning and, and some fishermen still were fabulous. The guys, the, uh, the gill netters, um, I used to go boat to boat and collect the Atlantic salmon off of them. And um, there was one year in the year 2000 that the guys were getting like 200, up to 250 Atlantics per day oh, in wow. Tribune Channel in the Broughton. It's because there, there had been a big escape. And um, the salmon farming industry very quickly realized that it was a problem because I was looking at these fish. I was finding out that they were, in fact, eating wild fish. So they began buying these Atlantics back. They paid really good prices. They paid the same as they would for coho. So the fishermen began selling them back, but one fisherman gave me his entire catch, and that was very important because the gillnet fishery was open, closed, open, closed, open, closed. So I got to see what happened with these Atlantics that had just escaped over a three-week period. And by the end of it, 24% of them were eating wild food. Um, but... Um, yeah, I, I, I really don't understand why the commercial fishermen didn't push back harder. I mean, they did in the beginning. They did with Jeff Meggs. They did through the Fishermen's Union. But I think what happened was the Fishermen's Union began to represent fish farmers. And and now it's the Steelworkers Union that represents them. And that's a little bit, yeah, that's a fairly galvanized body as well. I mean, and I don't mean that negatively for, for, for steelworkers, but certainly it's, it, there's a lot of bureaucracy and there's uh, there's a lot of bandwidth in that organization. So a lot of aggression. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you, you end up with, um, so, so now you've got viruses on, so you've got sea lice and you've got bacteria and now you have these two very, very dangerous and I'm assuming wildly contagious um, viruses that are, they're all existing. And you're continuing to put this in front of not just the salmon farming industry, but DFO. And what's everybody is just continuing to deny it exists or it's just not a problem? Oh, my gosh. So the story of ISA is just it's too bizarre to really even, you know, believe. It's interesting because when I went to write the book, the editor said, OK, we got to get rid of the virus stories. I was like, OK, no, I, I'm going to find a different publisher. And they said, Okay, well, we'll put the virus stuff in, but there's going to be no pictures because there's not going to be enough room for pictures. I said, fine, no pictures. Because, so ISA virus is an internationally reportable disease. There's very few um, pathogens are internationally reportable, and it's because other countries don't want it. And once it becomes reportable, they can say no and not be threatened with trade sanctions. 
So there were two labs in the world that were considered reference labs for this virus. One was in Norway and one was in Prince Edward Island. And I began sending samples to the one in Prince Edward Island. And he found it. He found it in farm salmon in the supermarkets. I wasn't allowed to test the fish in the farms. So I was buying fresh salmon from Superstore and Costco and Whole Foods. And then I began testing farm salmon sashimi uh, because I figured those were going to be even fresher. And we kept finding it. And we found it in wild fish that were near the farms. So there's two kinds of tests, as we all know now. There's PCR tests, which is kind of an on-off thing. It says, yes, you have it. No, you have it. Okay. So if you get a yes, you can go back and sequence it. And so you get a genetic sequence. So we were sequencing it. We couldn't get the whole virus because it's a very fragile virus. And all the fish I was testing had been dead too long to get the whole virus. But we were getting sequences. And the World Health Organization for Animals decided to delist the lab that I worked with <laughs> because he kept reporting these sequences. We published them in the Journal of Virology, a highly reputable scientific journal that is based on viruses. And then <laughs> the government said, okay, here's how everybody's going to test for this virus. We're going to do a new test, different PCR. Well, nobody found it again. What was the reason that they delisted? Was, did, was, there, a, was there a bona fide reason or, or, or was it just, was it as much of a shock to the people in Prince Edward Island? It was totally a shock because this lab had been used in, uh, when um, there was a researcher in Norway that found that uh, marine harvest had spread this virus to Chile. And so this scientist in Norway tracked it to Chile and he published a paper on it and they went after him. The companies went after him and they used the lab that I was using in Prince Edward Island. They used that lab to, to, to check his work. In the end, the guy in Norway was exonerated, but the lab I was using was so highly thought of that they, they used him for this, this, you know, very, very important test because when the virus spread to Chile, it cost $2 billion in damages. So um, what they said was, they said that his results were irreproducible, that they couldn't reproduce his results. But when I dug down into that, and I did this through the Access to Information Act by accessing the CFIA records, nobody had retested his samples. They, they put them in ethanol, which denatures them, which means you, you can't run the tests that you need to on them. And they didn't retest them. And they didn't go back to, to take the same samples from the same store or the same farm. And uh, it was an unbelievable hatchet job. I wrote to every single member of the World Health Organization for Animals. So these are uh, over 100 countries. I wrote to every single one of them and I said, do you realize that nobody did reproduce this man's test? Nobody, nobody came to me. I have the samples. They were my samples. Nobody came to me and asked for more samples or said, 
where did you get them from exactly so that we can go retest them? They just decided that his results were wrong. And, um, but the interesting thing was when I began the sampling, it was very easy to find. And after, you know, four or five tumultuous years, it became very hard to find. And so I think what happened, we didn't change our test, but I think what happened is the industry realized they were about to get caught and they cleaned up their act. And so, and, and so that means getting rid of some of the infected salmon or, or whatever. I mean, what, so what were the, I don't know what they did. I don't know what they did. The other thing they did right then was they stopped importing any more Atlantic salmon which was an interesting thing because they had always complained that they had to keep importing these things because they needed to mix up the genetics. But in 2010, as far as I know, they've never imported any more Atlantic salmon. There was at one point back in 2004, even that something Dr. Laura Richards had, had, had basically done the same thing, right? Where there was a question about the importation of eggs, which would have been a contravention because there was a belief that they could have been infected. And I believe she had made the decision that, um, yeah, she wrote in a department memo, two BC salmon farming companies wish to import Atlantic salmon eggs from an Icelandic company, which is not certified under the Canadian Fish Health Protection Regulations. And two, two caveats, failure to provide permission for egg uh, importation may trigger a trade challenge. And additionally, DFO could also be viewed as causing a competitive disadvantage to the aquaculture industry. It says nothing about the health of salmon, what the consequence would be on wild salmon or the, the, the farm salmon themselves. It's strictly, it's a business decision. That's what it gets reduced to. It, it, it's a bad business decision because in the, you know, in the state of the planet right now, if you have abundant wild salmon, oh my gosh, you've got something incredibly valuable. That's where the real money is. Alaska realizes this. They're careful with their fish. They have lots. I, where I live, I watch those Alaska sane boats go by, and then I watch them go south. Meanwhile, the Canadian guys are sitting with no fishery at all. Well, some of that could be climate and temperature, but after watching these fish get eaten by lice, after chasing after these viruses, so the, the Piscine ortho-reovirus is another almost hilarious story. It infects a lot of farm salmon, the majority of them. And I took the industry to court, and they said, we will be severely impacted if we're not allowed to put infected Atlantics into the farms, infected with this virus. And Canadian DFO scientists said, oh, oh, oh yeah, no, this, this virus has always been here. It's harmless. But <laughs> viruses have these genetic clocks, and, so, and they have family trees. And so when you sequence them, you can see how they're related, you can see how long it's been since they, they left the mother country. This, this is work that we do. This is, we're doing this right now with COVID. We're, we're, we know where these different strains came from, right? People don't doubt that. They know. Well, it's the same with this fish blood virus. It's from Norway. And yet these DFOs and provincial scientists have argued that, you know, it's, it's from British Columbia and it's not causing disease. And this is not true. And um, in the meanwhile, it's, it has spread widely. Um, it's, it's up in the Skeena. It's in the Columbia. It's all over the place. And, and hopefully if we can 
turn these darn things off and stop this from spreading, the predators could hopefully clean this up. But it's so insidious. It gets into the red blood cells of the fish and it, it replicates in there and then it causes those red blood cells to explode. So, and for DFO, they're really, they're really conflicted about this because they have scientists in DFO that's like, oh, no, no, it's fine. And they have other scientists in DFO who say, no, no, it is not fine. It's lethal. So we're, so inside of that, <clears throat> you have, you have played this out um, through the Cohen Commission. Um, by, by your own words, you were the only person that, w- when the Cohen Commission was impaneled, um, you were the only person that felt comfortable. I guess on the on the let's do something about the salmon side. Um, you were the only one that said let's let's present all of this evidence, and it was you that said we're gonna we're gonna talk about the viruses. We're gonna talk about sea lice. Like I wanna I wanna present this. I want to present the scientific evidence, and it was what what would have what would have been the other things that they would have used to to uh, compel an argument that says that there's something going on with salmon. Had you not said, "Listen, I'm presenting this stuff," you're I, maybe we're not all in the same boat, but somebody's got to bring this up. I don't know what they what the Cohen Commission would have been considering had you not been allowed to present some of that information. I don't know what the argument would have been. So salmon are declining other than a big yeah there's a big why that goes goes beside that but you're the one that's offering some possible causality i don't i just don't understand what what else they would have been debating other than okay we've got some some salmon farms what's the consequence you're the only one who was bringing consequence in there other than somebody might have said a very generic i guess some fish are dying yeah uh yeah, so the big problem for the Fraser of Sockeye was the fact that they were making it back to the river and then they were dying in the river just before they spawned, which was a really unusual circumstance because usually when fish die of disease, they're gone. You don't see them. You don't know what happened to them. They disappear in the ocean. But, but these fish, it was so frustrating. They were dying right where people could see them. And so um, there was this uh, database with millions of uh, documents in them and as a participant, I was given access to these documents. And so I began, you know, winding my way through them. And I found the conversations of the DFO scientists that were in the river trying to figure this out. And these guys were, were really concerned and really trying to figure this out. But they were also frustrated because DFO wasn't backing them up. They said things like, the whole Nadina River died and we didn't get any samples because we didn't have any shipping, you know, POs to use. We got one gill arch, he said. And and they they thought in the end they did think it was a virus. Well then they tasked Christy Miller. And Christy, instead of looking at the fish, she looked at their immune system. And she was the first one to say, okay, the immune system of the fish that spawned versus the one that died were doing completely different things. And when she looked at the immune system of the fish that died, uh, because human or terrestrial and fish immune systems look similar, which is so interesting. Um, the immune system of the, of the fish was saying leukemia, retrovirus, immune deficiency. She's like, oh, my God, what is this? She thought she was going to find that they had starved out in the ocean and they just lost steam as they were coming up the rivers to spawn. So, so then she, she bumped into this whole salmon leukemia thing that was happening in the farms, and she said, oh, 
I, I need to test in the farms to see if this is the same thing. And that's where her life start to go badly. DFO is like, you know what? No. And, and you know what? Let just forget the whole thing. No, no more money. For, no more money for research on the sockeye. But I found it. I found all of her thought process and we brought it to uh, the forefront and the lawyers just attacked me. They, they just were like, okay, this woman has no business being here. She's an activist. <laughs> I wasn't presenting my research. I was presenting what Their a research. DFO scientist had said. Yeah. But, it, it, so, but Dr. Miller, she trips over basically reaffirming what Dr. Kent had already seen, right? Exactly. Like it's, 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 it's already, this is old news. Like this is already, we've already uncovered this on some level in the nineties. And then she retests and is like, okay, does she connect the dots between what was already being researched and documented with, with DFO? Oh, Oh, she connected those things. And then she's, and then she's probably trying to, she's trying to push that uphill, right? We got a problem. We need to look at this. I need more money. Um, We got to look at this deeper. And they're like, no, we're on, we're just pulling the plug on this thing. Let's just nothing to see here. Move on. It's more than a problem. Like the majority of Fraser Sockeye were dying. They couldn't open any more commercial fisheries in Johnson Straits because it didn't matter how many fish they had coming in. They didn't know how many were going to live long enough to spawn. Like the numbers were there, but the fish just weren't surviving to spawn. Her, she should have gotten the order of Canada. She figured it out. <laughs> Now, the salmon farming industry, I began to go, oh, I wonder, because this disease was in the Chinook farms. And remember, I said the industry switched to Atlantic. Atlantic, yep. But they didn't switch completely. They left some of, some of those Chinook farms in the Discovery Islands, which is the narrowest, most vulnerable part of the Fraser Sockeye migration route. There were Chinook farms in there. Well, as soon as Christie began to discover all of this, of course, she's talking about it in the Pacific Biological Station. And very quickly, the salmon farming industry got rid of all the Chinook farms. And the last, or sorry, the first Fraser River sockeye that went to sea without being exposed to Chinook salmon farms infected with this virus came back in 2010. That was that miraculous generation that just came out of nowhere. And suddenly there was 30 million of them and they did not die in the river. (laughs) Yeah. I'm the only one talking about this because it just, it sounds so preposterous, but that is what happened. And that's why I really wanted to write this book just because this story needed to get written. I just the the dots of the dots aren't. I mean, scientifically, um, maybe they're harder. But you know, as you laid it out, it's not like I had to. It wasn't. There's detective work that even by your own admission, it's like some of this stuff is glaringly obvious. You know, some of you know, understanding the diseases and all of those things, sure. But to me, it's like okay, uh, you you made a you connect the dots. Like, okay, fish farm. Here's a guy that's been farming. Let's go back to Billy Proctor. He's like, listen, bad things happen when you do this, you know, at scale, right? There's a consequence. Even somebody that's been fishing for a long time can see that. And he sees it from the hatchery side, says, okay, well, let's take a hatchery, put it in the water, and I can only see bad things coming. And he's not an academic. 
And then you you kind of come on the scene and it's like, okay, fish farm, migration corridor. Now we have declines in the Fraser River. Now we have fish that obviously are affected. So I'm assuming uh, size of the fish goes down, like you, you talked about their color, luminescence, um, open sores. I mean, there's just, there's a whole cascade of obvious symptomology that just presents itself. It's not hard to find. The fishermen are seeing it. You're finding it in the river, in the, in the river system. You have declines and returns. All of these things, somehow they don't start until somebody starts dumping a bunch of fish farms into the Discovery Islands. And I just, <laughs> I struggle with how, how people cannot connect the dots and cobble all of this together. And at what point there is a willful, there's a willfulness um, to set all of this evidence aside. Um, and through the Cohen Commission, in spite of all of their recommendations, you know, you, you bring this to now, we, we have... 10 years that are up for renewal, and I'm, we're going to get to that in a little bit. But at no point in that public inquiry, even in the Cohen Commission, do you feel that the recommendations were like, no, this is, a, this is, this is clearly negligence on the, on the part of fish farming. I just didn't get the sense that the, that the conclusions that were being made were like, yeah, absolutely. It's like when the Cohen Commission gets impaneled, it's like, well, you got eight years to sort it out. Take some time, but, you know, if we get to this time horizon and, you know, things are still the same, I guess we're going to talk about it. It's not like, you know, right, we've got pretty good evidence that things are bad. There's a bad consequence on wild salmon stocks. This is a bad thing. Here's the measures and here's the things you need to do to change and let's get it done now. No, it's like, no, let's sit around and study it and we'll think about it for a few years. Now we're in that time horizon. Do you think that people get it now or do you think that it's it's it, it just they're, they're, they're going to just reinvent themselves and it'll be some other uh some other strategy are they going to renew the tenures like wh where are we at with all of this on the other side of all of this i think that um i think that the the present federal government realizes that this thing smells bad and they don't want it to stick to them i think they got that far because um, the previous Minister of Fisheries, Bernadette Jordan, did something that shocked everybody on all sides. Um, so, yeah, Justice Bruce Cohen said, um, by 2020, September 30th, 2020, if DFO cannot prove that the salmon farms are having less than minimal risk, then they have to be removed from the Discovery Islands. And, you know, what I've been describing this evening has, has, has been how DFO hid the evidence, how they covered up what I found and what Christy Miller found and what others found. They ignored us and they just built this whole quasi scientific argument that the farms are okie dokie. It's fine. They, yeah. They caused all these problems everywhere in the world, but here in British Columbia, they're, they're fine. But minister Bernadette Jordan doesn't think they're fine. And so she says to the industry, to the three Norwegians, you cannot put any more fish in 19 salmon farms in the Discovery Islands. I, I was sitting at my desk watching one of the big fish farm boats go by. It was about to head up Knights Inlet to pick up fish to take down to the Discovery Islands. And the boat 
literally stopped and started spinning in circles. <laughs> I, I felt like I was having an out-of-body experience. I didn't even know how to... Ha- well, what? 19 seven times? This is, this is incredible. I, I mean, I, I, it was so huge, I, I wasn't even sure how to feel. I've never, there was never any inkling of, of any progress in the water for the wild fish. And so this spring I went down there to look at the young fish going through the Discovery Islands and I, they were so beautiful. I, I didn't, I didn't know what their body shape was. I thought that these little salmon had curved backs, curved bellies and flat sides. No, they are plump. They're so plump that they, their bellies create a little shadow under their, you know, for their undersides. They were, they were perfect. And how long has it been since they, they, they put a moratorium? Is it a moratorium or is it no, no. Th- those 10 years are gone? You guys are at, Well, the 10 years are still there. What she said was, your 10 years are going to expire in this coming June, but you're not allowed to put any more fish in. So in other words, if you have fish in, you can finish growing them, and it takes two years for them to grow these fish. In the, in the pen, and another year in the hatchery. I mean, they're the slowest growing farm animal in, on the planet. But anyway, she said you can't put any more in. And just by stroke of luck, most of these farms, the fish were mature. And so this spring, when, when all the fish were coming north from the Fraser River and other southern rivers, all the farms were empty. It, it, was, it, was, it, was, a, you know, it was a person who's watched extinction in play and watched what happens to these little fish in a really personal way. Like I'm eyeball to eyeball with them to see them look so beautiful is, you know, I think it's a very rare experience on, on this planet that a biologist gets that opportunity to see something get turned around. Well, of course the companies sued the minister and said she didn't have the right to make that decision that it that this is a normal process granting these transfer licenses is a routine thing and she shouldn't really be involved but that's not what the fisheries act says um anyway it's been argued and the judge is thinking about it now and we'll see what happens if we lose um then the minister the new minister has to make the decision and that's Joyce again. Murray now right so Joyce Murray but I wrote to the previous minister uh, while this lawsuit was going on because I said to her, your senior staff threw you under the bus. They provided affidavits for the industry that said, basically, we have no idea how the minister made this decision. This took us totally by surprise. They made the minister look like she was the renegade. It was, it was appalling. And interestingly... The senior staff involved with aquaculture have left. They disappeared right after that process. The the head of aquaculture, Allison Webb, the the lead veterinarian for aquaculture, Zach Waddington, is now in New Zealand. And others just got up and left after that. I, I, I think I think at some point the people inside are saying we, we just can't do this anymore. I I don't know. There's a, you had a quote um, 
from the late Dr. Ransom Myers. <laughs> and uh, it was uh, the, the language is worth is worth noting. Um, so fisheries, he was a fisheries biologist, correct? Dr. Myers, okay. Um, and he had actually come up to the Broughton Archipelago. And in your article, you said, uh, told me that it what it was like to be a science that could have prevented the collapse. His quote was, when DFO told me not to tell the public, this is a, talking about the cod fishery, I believe, correct? Which Yes, on the East Coast. On the East yep. Coast, which is, it was something that happened to him, or it was, it was part of his proviso. Uh, Why the, uh, the cod were collapsing, it took me seven minutes to decide to, to resign. DFO is a criminal organization. Now, he's talking about the cod fishery collapse on the Grand Banks. Um, but the same mechanisms, the same level of obfuscation, the same level of disregard for consequence, all of that's already played out. I mean, in a, in a, in a different hatchery, um, in, a, pardon me, in a different fishery, uh, in a different species, but the exact same set of circumstances, but the same organization. Um, so the fish rots from the head down. <laughs> You know, you know what happened after those cod went down? As soon as that commercial fishery was closed, the Hibernia oil wells went on to the Grand Banks. Yep, 100%. So uh, another managed to zero proposition. Well, it was, it was one in, an industry that was having a problem with the wild fish. Yeah, the oil industry had been having a problem with the cod, and a whole bunch of people are having a problem with wild salmon. Yeah, yeah a lot of people, I would imagine. Yeah, um, the loggers, the miners the developers, the ones that want to build dams. I mean, industrialization is having a problem with wild salmon. So if, other than just just simply removing the farms, is that enough? <laughs> well, we're getting it. We have a front row seat on that now. Um, here's the problem. They've been driven down so low. Like in the Broughton Archipelago, we have, we have rivers with no fish at all, no salmon returning at all. We have rivers with, you know, two fish. Uh, so, so yeah, it, you know, initially, if you just get rid of this problem, they're going to be fine, but we're now watching to see if there's going to be a bounce. But an interesting thing happened. So I saw all these beautiful fish go through the Discovery Islands. And usually, you know, the juveniles are gone from this coast by at the latest early August. But this year, there were millions and millions of juvenile salmon jumping all around Malcolm Island in the Discovery Islands, in the Broughton Archipelago. And I saw them and marveled at like, what, what are they doing here? It's September. And other people saw the same thing. And so what I'm wondering is, is this normal? Is this what happens when you don't kill the majority of them with sea lice and disease? Were they always here in September? So somebody is going to get back a whack of young fish uh, next summer. If those, they look like they were pinks, the way they were jumping. Um, and pinks go out one year and they come back the next year. So, so we have a ringside seat on this um, to see what happens. There was a, there was a, <laughs> what, there's a quote that I wanted to, to cover about, and this is about DFO a little bit. Um, when, when you first got started in this, and now we're going to flash forward to now, uh, I didn't need to keep pushing on the most buttress door in the for fortress, the door that was never going to open. It didn't even have hinges. And yet from the time that you started that back in the late 80s, 
here you are and it's 2021 and I would suggest you probably haven't stopped writing letters. You, you haven't stopped doing podcasts like our own. There's been probably a lot of, there's been great personal cost. Um, there's a lot of energy um, that you've put at this. Um, do you feel it's worth it? Do you feel at all after after all the all of the energy, expense, emotion, um, will that you've applied at this? Um, do you feel that it's been worth it? And because now, you, like you said, we have a ringside seat, but you don't know what the outcome's going to be. I mean, it, maybe it's a happy ending. Maybe it's just you know the beginning of another set of tragedy. I don't know, but will it be worth it? You know. <laughs> It's definitely it's definitely gotten increasingly hard. Um, you know, watching extinction just really knocks it out of a person, particularly when you did so much to try to stop it. But what I and I'm feeling really really down. What I keep telling myself is I have done everything I can to protect this place. I've done everything I can to protect this place, and that makes me feel better. I simply have done everything I can. And um, I mean, without reservation. And so uh, I don't know if it's going to be successful. There's there's so many things going wrong right now. But, you know, wild salmon are feeding the trees that make the oxygen we breathe. They're feeding the trees that pull carbon out of the atmosphere. They are incredibly important, far beyond the way they taste or how fun it is to catch them or the fact that they feed the whales, they are actually essential to our whole ecosystem. And I'm part of their biology. Now I'm part of them. I, the, and everybody who's working for them is part of them. Just like the river, the rain, the seawater temperature, the zooplankton, we have become part of the biology and it just, it gives me the feeling that I'm on the big team you know, because <laughs> I've really been on the little team. And, and now I, I, um, so, but, but, you know, just one comment I want to make, make, make there. You said, I, I'm probably still writing letters. Nope. Nope. <laughs> I, I, I barely talked to DFO. I talked to the ministers I talk to their scientists, but they like to build these processes that will absorb your energy completely, mm-hmm. make you feel like you have done something, and it's for nothing. So DFO is a big, powerful machine. It could be doing a lot of good, but really, I'm, they cannot have my energy anymore. I work with First Nations. And I, 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 and I, we didn't, we didn't talk about that. And I, and maybe we should just pause because I think it's important that we, that we should, we should cover some of that. I think a lot of the success that you found is when you, you bound your energy um, and you became a force multiplier because it was a first nations issue at the same time. It was an issue for you was an issue for them. And you, you found a lot of support and probably a lot of strength and probably a bigger, broader voice um, as you did. I, it, felt, it felt like a very symbiotic relationship. They were probably, I felt like the First Nations communities were using your scientific acumen 
um, maybe to help focus some of the questions, and you use their social energy and the and the the, the bandwidth of their communities um, to take your message, distill it down into something that could be more broadly broadcast. Um, but what a force multiplier! So, yeah, no, it's 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 subtly different from what you said. It's the fact that. Um, a group of us stood on the farms for 280 days through the winter of 2017, 2018. So it was indigenous and non-indigenous, but it was led by the First Nations. And then what happened was uh, Premier John Horgan came to Alert Bay and said, okay, basically, what's it going to take? And the nation said, we don't want you to renew these tenures because they were all about to expire in um, 2018. And so they went into talks, the First Nations and the government, and I was not part of that. I was not allowed to know what was going on. Neither were any of the occupiers. And when they came out the other end, the First Nations were in control of the farms. And so I now I just work for them. I just figure out what is going on, and I give the information to these chiefs, and they go talk to the government. These nations want wild salmon. For sure they do. And they have the law on their side. And they're very clear about this. And so I'm no longer the front of it at all. I'm I'm in the back doing the biology again, which is where I want to be. <laughs> and and they're good at this. They're they're spectacular. So I'm not going to say all First Nations are, are doing the right thing with this industry by any means, because there's, there's one nation in the Broughton that's trying to actually get more farms. But um, this really works because First Nation governments, want, they want the fish. They're, they're, they are not conflicted about that. Yeah, so it, 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 the, the results have been, um, in terms of, like you said, there, maybe there are one or two people that, or one or two communities that maybe aren't on board but generally speaking, there's a fairly broad application of their will in this process. Um, it's interesting that you bring up that because that's one of the the things that what, the, the meeting that you talked about in Alert Bay at the Big House. Um, it was when Horrigan was there with I think Lana Popham, and it was his uh, what he had said was, "Okay, I'll sit down and listen to your stories." You know, when, <laughs> which was and you used the word condescending, and I remember reading that <laughs> saying like. You know, that, that's not a way to, to start this off when we have, a, we have a conservation issue, which is what they're bringing. This isn't talking about just the, pe- the history of our people and how salmon got here. We're talking about a real relevant issue that's political right now. And I just thought, I, I hope he has learned uh, and done an about face for, and stepped back from that position. So, um, but I, I just remember reading that thinking, wow, that is a really insincere way to embrace that kind of dialogue. So. Um, I got to say, I, I mean, there's been a, there's been a great, uh, there's been a great conversation. Um, you know, it was, your, your book was, uh, absolutely, I, I was, I don't reread a lot of books multiple times. Um, and certainly not as I'm going through them, but if you can, if you can see your book's got sticky notes all over it, uh, it's, uh, dog-eared. My wife's like, well, you just could dog-ear the whole book if you're just going to keep going back and reread, <laughs> rereading <laughs> chapters. But, um, yeah, it has served as a great discussion uh, as I tried to relay my uh, my understanding of the salmon crisis to my wife. 
Um, and it's a, it's a conversation we wanted to have and we wanted to have it with you. And I'm, I'm, I'm really, really appreciate it. on behalf of Steve and Matt and myself Absolutely. and all the listeners at the cut banks conversations. Thanks for giving us your time, your perspective yeah. and uh, sharing with us. It was uh, really, was awesome. That great conversation. Thank you. I mean, I can really tell that you read it. You got me all upset again and <laughs> and yeah, it just took me through all the emotions again, but, um, yeah, thank you very much for this conversation, and I'm I am very hopeful that we can see them come back these fish. Well, thanks again, Alex. Have a great evening, and um, hopefully we'll uh, we'll be in touch and maybe an update as we sit on the sidelines of what's about to become. Uh, maybe we can revisit this conversation in 2022, and hopefully there's some good news. So, yeah, let's do that. Awesome. Yeah, okay. That great. Great. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. Great. She was just great. What a great conversation. Holy cow. Wow. 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 Yeah, she's great. Yeah. That's a wow. Love, love chatting with her. So I, I think that, you know, for, you know, from my own perspective, if you've never read the book, uh, not on my watch, um, you know, there, and we've had Steve and I noticed when we, we post about, uh, about doing this episode. And I mean, there's going to be some naysayers and people that have reduced uh, Alex to an activist and she's a scientist first. And yep. she was forced into the role of activist. Um, and, and I think most of us are. Right? I think we all we, are. We we give yep. a shit about fish and wildlife and habitat. And when you get the naysayers, all of a sudden, you know you're doing something right. Yep. Right. You got the attention of people that are pissed off at what you're doing and how you're saying it. There's a reason. Yep. Reason? People are listening. And I mean, everybody's, everybody's got to pick a side and you've got to pick a fight. Uh, and you have to find a, a through line that's a conversation that represents how you see the world. Um, you know, and we've done that on some issues on the, on this program and we'll continue to, um, we don't see saying things the same as everybody that listens to this podcast. Um, but you know, we want to, we want to explore the perspectives that are out there, even when they're not our own, um, and, and see what's behind them. But this issue, I mean, if we really reduce this, regardless of, regardless of what we think, um, of the individual, um, this person is advocating to try to return salmon, wild salmon. Where's the downside? Yeah, well, I don't understand what the downside would, would be. Would anybody that. be pissed off if, if uh, the shoe was on the other foot or the horn or the antler was on the other foot and they're trying to advocate for moose or deer or caribou? No. And God, whether no. it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wild, it, it's wild salmon. And it, it, like to your point, wild salmon, recovering moose, recovering caribou. I mean, I, one of the things we left out of this discussion, you know, we have this whole framework uh, in Canada around, you know, species at risk and, you know, Coastwick and, and we have all these red listed, um, so salmon stocks, you know, we have, uh, you know, Spruce City, uh, has a, is a hatchery program and we've got all these hatcheries to do salmon enhancement and hatcheries are a, they're a bandaid solution for a broad scale problem, which is we're losing wild salmon stocks, which are far more, you know, virile, right? Um, that's the, that's what we want. We want wild salmon in our rivers. We don't want them. We don't want a bunch of replicants, right? We'd love to be able to shut down all hatcheries and go, you know what? We did it. We did it. Here we are. And I mean, and, and they're, they're not to, I think there'll always be a case for hatcheries on some level. I think we've crossed. Unfortunately. Yeah. I think yeah. we've crossed a line. Absolutely. But, it, but I think they should strictly be, there should be some subtle augmentation. Um, and she, she referenced a, a, a hatchery. If you look at Alaska, we talk about the Bristol Bay hatchery, you know, on this program quite a bit quite a bit i mean that's 50 million fish and like she said those boats go up 
50 to 53 million sockeye going up that river, and then they take at least 40, 40, of, of 40 million of them, yeah. and then they come back, and then the next year, there they are again. It's sustainable. So I think there's a couple of things. Yeah, this is maybe a bit heavy-handed, and if you, if you could tell by my tone, I think that the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, regardless of who's running it, um, there are some serious flaws um, in, in how they go about their business that you have taken, I mean, and we see this with, with other resource industries and we're looking at right now, there's going to be some broad scale, you know, um, <laughs> repurposing of the Forestry Range and Practices Act. And I mean, I'm not saying that it's, it's all villainy, but there's certainly time to, to revisit, you know, the landscape of legislation. Does it represent the resources that it was designed to protect and manage? Um, salmon is one of those things. And if wild salmon are important, when I look at that Species at Risk Act, to come back to that point, why have these thresholds if when we are past them, no one does a thing, right? So if you have all of, if, if you have things on um, virus, virus transmission in a salmon farm, when you find evidence of it, why would you choose to dilute the evidence or choose not to see it? or spend all of this energy to find some other, and it, it's a willful act of neglect. Or, or just delist the lab. Yeah, or delist the lab. There's just, there are too many, there are too many things that suggest it's more important for us to have the, the, the commerce of the fish, the it, fish it, farm it's industry. in the name alone of the, the ministry, Department of Fisheries. Yeah. Not fish. Not fish. Fisheries. Not fish management, fisheries. And I think... I think in that, there's an important distinction in her opinion that I think the fish farm industry forgets. You know, she has been very careful in in her book and in every article I've ever read that she's written, and I've read a few. I don't believe she ever says she wants an end to the fish farming no, industry. No, she said it's not about whether there should be fish farms. It's it's the, the location. how and where. Yeah, the locations. This, is, this problem solves itself when it becomes landlocked. And does that mean that there's more input costs to, to do it? Sure. Does it hurt the bottom line a little bit? Sure. Not our problem. But, I mean, every industry on the planet has had to find a way. Steel had to do that, right? Coal had to move to a clean coal regiment, right? There are in, the oil industry. industry Looking at lumber right now. <laughs> yeah. We, we, you have to find a way to make Absolutely. it more sustainable. You have to move away from old growth trees. There are things, there are constrictions that we have to put on industry. Yes, you could still be profitable. Yes, you could still be viable. But there are things that we have to do for the greater good. Um, because there's another Make those concessions. Yeah, there there has to be there has to be concessions to represent the other values on the landscape. So, what a great uh, great episode, great discussion, Matt. You got to get this one. This has got to be number one with a bullet to get this thing out for for Friday. <laughs> when, uh, we we next... just need the good graphic of like that epic mustache on your face. Put that up there. <laughs> People will start good. listening for yeah, that. Yeah, just clickbait. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, anyway, uh, so that's it from uh, from uh, Stevie, uh, Matt, and myself here in the Barebone Studio. Um, stay tuned. Uh, we'll be sitting down with Jesse Zeman from BC Wildlife Federation, and we've got a whole lot of stuff to talk about about with him. And then uh, Adam Ford and Chloe Wright from the Southern Mule Deer Research Project. I still, so, I still need to call Dean from Swarrow. And, yeah, and at some point, we're going to get back to Swarovski office. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening to the Cut Thanks Conversation, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.